just a word about uh, later literature. Mm-hmm. That uh, the source of later literature uh, is suspicious. That uh, the whole quality of uh, the of Buddhism basically is that there was the Buddha, and mm-hmm. that he was remarkable in that he did two things. One was that he figured out how to, to do it. And then he also figured out how to teach it. But in the process of that, he also came to the point that this is too profound, it's too subtle, it's too difficult, and therefore it's going to be not worth my time to go teach it. And then the next thought that he had was, well, wait a minute, I had some teachers. Maybe I should go share it with them. But then uh, reflecting uh, both of those teachers that he was thinking about, Ala Kalama and uh, Nagan uh, and oh, Rama Ramaputta, um, were already dead. And so then the idea was, okay, well, I'm going to go talk to the five guys that were with me for the six years, okay? And so that was the, uh, the, the practice of going with, with that. What we have in later literature is suspicious authorship. Certainly there are some interesting details that they fill in, but if there's any deviation from what the later literature says with what actually the Buddha said, then the the literature becomes suspicious, hmm. and that uh, there is a document uh, called the Visuddhimagga. Have you ever heard of the Visuddhimagga? Okay, the, the Visuddhimagga was written in the fifth century A.D., and that it was. Um, it was written by a scholar, and that when one applies the noble Dhamma to it, we can come up with one of two possibilities. Either this guy just copied down stuff from any and everywhere he could, and he really didn't understand anything that he was talking about because he had no real practice, which is possible because scholars are often like that. Hmm. Um, an example of that would be a theoretical mathematician that spends all of his time on the whiteboard and has not been discerned yeah. and has not done the experiments, okay? Yeah, I see. Uh, and so that's one possibility with this. And the other possibility is, is that it's an intentional fraud. Hmm. It is an intentional fraud. Is intending to mislead, and that Dasa, By the way, this document that we're talking about, this Vasudhimaga, it's a really big, thick book, hmm. uh, and the author of it is Buddha Gosa. The reason that I'm mentioning this to you 
is because it does mislead, and yet it has been very, very popular in Sri Lanka and Burma and also in mm. Thailand, but it's losing its popularity in Thailand as the popularity of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa increases. I see. All right. Uh, and that uh, at one point in Bhikkhu Buddha's life, in, in the late part of his life, he said uh, that the Visuddhimagga and the, and the Abhidhamma, most specifically the Abhidhamma, could be burned or thrown in the ocean at Buddhism and would be better off without them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but he came to that very late. The first thing that he became aware of way, way back when was the issue of uh, Petitu Samupada taking literally three lifetimes as opposed mm. to figuratively three lifetimes. Mm. Figuratively three lifetimes is the way that the Buddha spoke about it, and what we mean by that is literally the immediate past, yeah. this immediate present moment, mm. and then the future, the next moment. But literally, we think of it as a, a past life, and karma carries over from one life to the next. So, uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa understood that, and understood that large sections of this book were, were wrong, but it had a lot of other stuff in it, too. Mm-hmm. And that as he matured over his, the, the many years, uh, the less he liked it, the more he found out wrong with it. Mm. And that this is one of the, the points that uh, many people find that the sitting practice or the sitting meditation that we have is basically following this book. Mm. And, that the out- and that the outcome of that kind of practice is magic. Mm. That it is true that it's talked about uh, out of one many, and using the example of a reed coming out of the reed sheath, or like a sword coming out of its holster. Mm. That, that the holster is one and, the, and the, the knife is another. What this is actually pointing out is mind-made objects that you actually manufacture concepts in your mind, and in fact, you could go so far as to say that's what an invention is. Hmm. When we invent something, it's a mind-made object that then we make in reality. But the way that of, of the magic is, is that when one becomes many or um, out of one comes another, is hmm. that now... You've got one monk in the in the temple, but it appears to the people in the village like there's a hundred monks. <laughs> okay, that's when it gets really magic. I see. All right, now, what the real practice of the Buddha is, is not about squatting on the floor until magic comes. <laughs> Or even squatting on the floor until happiness comes, or joy Mm. comes. Mm. That in fact, the actual teachings of the Buddha have to do with 
what's happening in this present moment and what we do with it right now. Uh, and there's many ways to look at that uh, in the suttas. An example of it is wise attention. That when one is paying unwise attention, then the unwise attention will be what is the mind, who am I, uh, and we wind up with a whole lot of philosophical questions that don't have answers to them. But instead, if we have the ability to pay wise attention, then we will apply that to the actual teachings of the Buddha. This is suffering. Wise attention to what is suffering. Wise attention to how this stuff gets started, how's the cause of it. And in that regard, that's where we're going to learn about Paticca Samapada, because Paticca Samapada is not some sort of magical thing uh, mm-hmm. that you can see immediately if, in fact, uh, our goal in this immediate life right now is for freedom, to be free from suffering, then what's the story about the next life? What's that got to do with? Mm-hmm. That, in fact, the idea of birth doesn't have to be the reborn, the rebirth of a baby in a yeah. womb, but rather the rebirth is for the mind to be reborn in a woeful state. For yeah. instance, you're lollygagging along and everything is beautiful, and somebody calls you the N-word or something, and you get really angry. Immediately, you're <laughs> right into hell. You're in hell. Okay. <laughs> So you're reborn immediately right into a woeful state. Or you see a drop-dead gorgeous babe. Wait a minute. The drop-dead gorgeous was something already that you added to it. That all you saw was the figure of a human being and all the drop-dead gorgeous (laughs) stuff. And now I want it, I want it, I want it, and now we've been reborn in hell. I see. Actually, this is called the the reborn in the state of the hungry ghost, wanting something we don't have. We long for something that we don't have. And so these are the ways that we actually get (coughs) reborn. But let's back up to a bit about the Four Noble Truths and that this is actually what we're going to pay wise attention to. We pay wise attention as best we can to the Four Noble Truths, especially in regard to the skill building, the skill set that we're building in the Eightfold Noble Method or the Eightfold Noble Path, Mm -hmm. is to pay wise attention to those things. Mm -hmm. However, there's another point in there, and that is what is wise attention? Because that's something that most people don't have. Their attention is, in fact, not wise. That's why they're worried about who I am when they sit down to meditate, trying to figure out the self. Because they've heard all about Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, and they (laughs) figure all of that stuff out. And they wind up for years practicing and not getting anywhere. So what is wise attention? There's a specifically way way to look at that. That, in fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa calls it um, a mind fit for work. 
in the sense that many times our mind is not fit for work. And is not fit for work when it's got hindrance, like if it's confused, if it's dull, if the mind is wandering away, if we're sleepy, if we're tired, all of those kind of things will prevent us from being able to pay wise attention to really look at things clearly. And so part of Anapanasati is to develop the skills to come out of the hindrances so that we can get a foundation for having a mind that's fit for work. Mm. This is why the breathing is so important in Anapanasati, and yet the, the importance of the breathing had gotten kind of lost in later literature. Mm-hmm. An example of that would be the Burmese teachers, like uh, the style of Gowanka and Nahasi and whatever. They don't really talk about the breathing, but if you go back to the Anapanasati Sutta, it's bang, it's right there, and it is here and here and here and here and here. <laughs> and when we get that, then we understand that the Buddha was really on to it. Yeah. And that also this whole idea of proper breathing was not new to him or to the society at the time. But in fact, one of the things that the Buddha has said is, is that this stuff that I'm teaching, I put together, which meant many of the good ideas that he had already pre-existed and were well known at the time. For instance, the possibility of pranayana, like pranayana yoga, and the deep breathing, this is the same thing, except that the words are backwards. One is anapana or anaprana, and the other one is pranayana. All right? <laughs> I see. Don't get that connection. Yeah. All right? Yeah. And it has to do with controlled breathing. Controlled breathing in the sense of when you breathe in long, you know you're breathing in long. And when you're breathing out long, you know that you're breathing out long. This is such an important point because most of the teachings in meditation just say, oh, watch the breath. As if la, 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 that's all it was. But see, if the mind is actually not controlling the breath, mm. That means that it's not really loosely tied and the mind can wander away. It's almost like you see in many Western uh, videos, they have hitching posts for the horses. Yeah. And sometimes all they do is just drape, the, uh, <laughs> drape it over because the horse is now well trained. Right. But if in the fact that the horse is not very well trained yet and or in, and as or skittish in town, then they'll tape it and they'll wrap it several times around to actually tether the horse. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is the way that we're going to look at. We're going to actually tether the mind to the breath as opposed to just kind of limping it over. Because that means that the mind has got to be really sharp and focused to not wander away. Right. And that's not the beginning. So in the beginning, we really have to tether the mind. And this is where the breathing comes in. Mm. But then there's another point. When I'm saying that it goes on and on and on, 
And that is, is that every other skill of the 16 stages of Anapanasati, only these first two have to do of the knowing of the in-breath. Is it a long in-breath? Is it a short in-breath? And uh, we're controlling it that way. All of the others say that this item is a skill to be developed while putting sati onto this long in-breath and long out-breath. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, but the way that it's put in the English, it doesn't have the power. It just says uh, to train the mind in sukha while mindfully breathing in and mindfully breathing out. Yes, bang, that's saying it correctly, but I want to make sure that you're getting the power of that, mm. that we develop the sati while we're mindfully making sure that this is an in-breath and that this is an out-breath. And so we develop each one of these tools in sequence. How long mm-hmm. is that sequence? About three seconds, four seconds, and we go boom, 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 boom <laughs> developing all. <laughs> and so this is the way that we're practicing Anapanasati, and at the same time, we're wisely paying attention to the Eightfold Noble Path in the sense of uh, when we wake up, when Sati comes, we do the investigation. Is this a hindrance or are we already free from hindrance? Normally, we're not. There are many occasions when we are going to be. And in fact, one of the times that you could say is that when you're having a good Dhamma discussion Mm. with a friend, or you're even mulling it over your mind, or you're reading it in the book and contemplating it, your mind is on the wholesome. Mm. You shut the Dhamma book, or you leave the YouTube or Skype, (laughs) and that's when the hindrances come back. So in fact, you could say that uh, basically, Putting oneself into seclusion by sitting down in the meditation hall is in a way uh, inviting the mind to wander away, to go off just wandering around. I see. And so when Gawanka says, all right, now Sati comes in. When the mind wanders away, never mind, come back to the breath, never mind start again. He uses the term start again, but here we're going to mean something really specific with what Goenka means here. We're going to mindfully start controlling the breathing again, because when we allow the mind to wander away, the breathing gets shallow. Now, you've probably heard somewhere along the way that when that the human body expends most of the calories burned through the head. Have you ever heard of that? I heard uh, that's where most of the heat leaves the body. So I guess maybe same thing. Exactly the same thing. All right. Mm. In the sense that uh, the excess energy is expended in the form of heat. If that were true, then if people would, uh, who are instructed to go work out in the gym, maybe you should give them a blackboard and some mathematics. 
<laughs> That's how they're going to lose weight. <laughs> All right, but we're actually intending to work with that. Now we're talking a little bit beyond what the Buddha actually taught and are going into neuroscience and uh, modern science of the body. Mm-hmm. But that this part of the brain, the frontal cortex, uses far more energy than anything else. That it wasn't until they understand uh, that two things happened that caused the human being. And they both had to do with the association of whatever animal it was who got fire, which was about 600,000 years ago. When they started to learn to cook food, there's another idea about that, and that is putting your food in a hot, a natural hot spring and cooking it that way. But by cooking the food, they got a whole lot more nutrition out of the food, as well as they didn't need the big, heavy jaw muscles to chew raw meat. And because of that, the human jaw is very small, leaving a huge amount of muscle area on the side to control those big jaw muscles to expand into gray matter. But it still has to do with using a lot of energy because we've got it available to us, all right? right? And so this is why the deep breathing really helps because if we're in a normal state of shallow breathing, if we're in fact in hindrance and, and part of the hindrances would be maybe doubt or restlessness, both of those things have to do with fear. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of underlying fear that we carry around. That fear is actually propagated by the self-preservation instinct going off with false positives way too often. Right. That in fact, most of the people that I know have very safe lives. For instance, in here, <laughs> you don't have any alligators. <laughs> There's no mafia dons with knives. Uh, not that the I've cops seen. are not busting in. <laughs> There's no pythons circling around your leg. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> So why is it in a very safe environment people feel fear? The answer is because they're in the habit of it. That we started off in childhood where everything was a survival issue and everything was dangerous. And so we get in the habit of seeing danger when in fact there is no danger there. This gives rise and momentarily because it's very small that it has two effects. One is that it brings on these hindrances or problem solvings, and the other one is the breathing shuts down. That you probably heard of the fight-flight syndrome, but there's something that's associated with that, and is the first thing that happens is freeze. That freezing means that we're not breathing well. So we're going to intentionally make sure that you're getting a lot of oxygen. Mm-hmm. This is one's right effort now. And to energize the body, to energize the mind. And also, a lot of the amino acids that the body has finished with that are hanging out in the blood, that stuff will be expelled, the stuff will be expelled by the lungs. If you're not breathing well, then the blood oxygen level will go down 
that the uh, amount of uh, carbon dioxide in the blood will go up, as well as a lot of amino acids. And so the blood gets much more acidic. Even carbon dioxide causes carbonic acid. And so what we want to do then is to change the pH level intentionally of the blood, as well as bringing in a lot more oxygen to give the frontal cortex what it needs. Okay, so now we're beginning to understand, yes, this is an entire body-mind feeling system complex that we're we're going to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the Goenka technique really points to something, and that is the, the scanning actually is getting to know your body. Hmm. There's the way of in the formal way is the way that he does it in the sense of starting at the top of the head. Actually, there's on the actual head, not the head <laughs> top of the head and moving down. Been there, done that many, many times. But now what I practice much more is the natural way. In other words, we become aware of the whole body, but uh, not all simultaneously, but just kind of visiting around. What are the hands doing? What are the legs doing? What is the posture? So we're actually doing uh, a natural way that uh, they talk about in the Mahasi method, of rising, falling, touching, sitting. The rising and falling is actually means a breath that's deep enough that it actually causes some rising and some falling and that we should become aware of the body actually doing that. Mm-hmm. That you can feel the body's movement. You can feel the touch of the cloth, as he says. You can And uh, you can feel the breeze if you don't have much cloth around here. Yeah. <laughs> feel the air all around. So this is the way we begin to get in touch with the body. And this is a skill to be developed because mostly we don't pay much attention to the body. The humans, we don't. If you went around naked, you'd pay a whole lot more attention to your body. (laughs) But we close it up to make it safe and secure so that we don't have to pay much attention to it anymore. Right. The same way with shoes. This is why we teach walking meditation. Is That's to be done barefoot. Mm. Why? So you can see where you're going. You've got to watch where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got shoes on, you can just stumble right along, no problem. Mm. But if you're going barefoot, you need to watch where you're going. And so we pay much more attention to, to things. It's a kind of a wake-up. So we want to wake up the body also. And, and um, so the, the kind of the sequence of events, looking back on it from the Eightfold Noble Path, that we have right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. And that we're going to apply anapanasati to this. So that this is actually the set of skills that we'll be developing, but the right attitude is actually feeling good. Wrong attitude is being a loser. Wrong attitude is being <laughs> on the bottom of the stack. Wrong attitude is feeling bad because we need help. Mm. Right attitude 
is actually a feeling. And the feeling is, in fact, in the Pali, pity and sukha. The right attitude is, I can do this. Mm-hmm. The right attitude is, uh, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can throw that stuff out and come back to the mind in this present moment and be uh, in reality. And the reality is, this present moment is quite nice. (laughs) I like that. So, we practice the Eightfold Noble Path, uh, and that uh, the one's right view is actually very well defined in Sutta number 117, and is defined not as ordinary right view, which is actually a basic bunch of rules to keep Mm. those in wrong view from destroying the world. Mm. But uh, noble right view is actually uh, the quality of inspection. One's noble right view is an investigation. Mm-hmm. Not a conclusion. Most people think that my right view, like the world view, is the world is this way. I see. No, you got to look again before you say that. <laughs> <laughs> it might have changed. Yeah. Okay. And again and again. Huh? And again and again and again is for taking a, a second look without clinging to old conclusions that may no longer fit. So this is, in fact, what the faculty of wisdom, or panya, is really all about, is really look at what's going on. And Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was a big fan of that. In fact, Mm -hmm. very early in my relationship to him in talking about meditation, being from the Goanka camp, I I, uh, gave him the, uh, the statement in English of, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that? Oh, many a <laughs> time. Doing that in the meditation hall. That's right. All right. When I said that to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, he laughed. He really laughed. <laughs> and he says, if at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. LAUGHTER <laughs> Now, that seems to go along with the um, uh, the old saw, uh, the definition of insanity, and some say it was Freud, and some say it was um, Einstein, but the, right. uh, the, the point is, is that uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a new result is the definition of insanity. Yeah. All right, so if we, in fact, change our view that we know into changing the view into, well, let's take another look at it. Let's keep inspecting. Let's keep watching. That in fact, our in- investigation, when it, when it develops into a factor of enlightenment, that means that it's unremitting. Unremitting investigation. That's when it's a noble right view. And so with this um, right view to be able to look, we need that in combination with sati to remember to look. But in fact, they work hand in hand like this. Right. And then the third one, 
coming in is one's right effort. So that right view and right effort circle around our right inspection. Mm. We remember to look, we do look, we take the effort to look, we see what's going on, and we do it in relationship is, is this dukkha or is this okay? Mm. Not dukkha. Is this wholesome or is this not wholesome? Or in the Panchanarava of the, of the five hindrances, is this a hindrance? Am I in hindrance or not? Mm. And guess what do we do if we, after that inspection, after that investigation, we find that what was in the mind that we were beginning to look at and investigate was unwholesome, was a hindrance, what do we do with it? Do we keep inspecting it? Do we keep looking at it? See, it, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you tell me, please, because my, uh, I feel, I feel all I know how to do is keep looking at it. And I know we throw it out, but I, I feel confused as to how to throw it out. All right. Okay. If, if we get into the habit of inspecting it and looking at it, in a way, we want something out of it. But if we inspect it and look at it and see, in fact, that this is dukkha, if it is back to, is unwholesome, then why continue with it? Why put up with it? Mm. So this is part of that key ingredient that's missing. Because what are we going to put in our mind? Well, we're going to put something wholesome in it instead. That's what we're going to do. Think of the mind and the mind moments as like a conveyor belt. And you can only have one item on the conveyor belt at one time. All right, but the conveyor belt is moving fairly fast. Let's say that on this conveyor belt are tomatoes. And your job is to investigate those tomatoes. And you see one go by, it's nice, juicy, plumpy, it looks good. Here's one that's mashed. Here's another one that's got a, uh, a wormhole in it. Here's another one that looks good. What are you going to do with those mind moments or those tomatoes? Throw them out. Just going to let them go by, huh? Just let them be. Yeah, yeah. Are, are you actually now not going to be just the inspector or the investigator, but you're going to only allow to continue on the conveyor belt, those tomatoes that are valuable, useful, and wholesome, mm -hmm. and the ones who are, <clears throat> let us say, not up to our market standard, will be used for something else. I see. And so, in a way, what we're doing is we're beginning to put a standard on our own thoughts. Mm -hmm. And if the, if the thoughts don't come up to scratch, then we consider them not worth having. Which means that we want to set that bar fairly low in the beginning and or set it something that where we really know what's going on. Mm -hmm. But as our discernment grows, as we begin to get more sophisticated with it, we'll begin to do two things. One, some things that we used to throw out will out let in, and other things that we used to let in are now out you go. <laughs> <laughs> See. 
because we now have a better way of understanding what is in fact the dukkha or a hindrance. And so this is the point, is, is that we have to recognize that it's not just merely the investigation or the inspection that where insight comes from. But insight comes from the recognition of what is suffering and what is not suffering. Mm. What is dukkha? And if we get some insight into what is dukkha, then we'll have the discernment to be free from it, to throw it out. Mm. And so this is also part of the skill to be developed. Right effort is a skill. And we're going to put it into two groups. One is the group of getting our oxygen going, being able to breathe, being able to purify the body. Every time we think of it, we're going to take a nice, long, deep breath. Wow, I feel good. All right. (laughs) The next part is to take the right effort to do the investigation, figure out what what was in the mind was wholesome or not, and quite often it's going to be unwholesome. But in fact, the more discernment you have, the more possibility it's actually going to be unwholesome. For instance, people will think about, well, I've got some work to do, therefore I'm going to think about doing it before I do it. And the answer to that is, once you recognize that you have been thinking about it, but you're not doing the work, why continue to think about it? (laughs) The example would be, uh, uh, soon enough it's going to be time to go to the bank. Mm but all the papers to go to the bank are all in a pile. They've already been collected. And so now I don't even have to think about going to the bank until it's time to go to the bank. Hmm. I don't have to think about, oh, I've got to go to the bank. That's right. Oh, next week I've got to go to the bank. Oh, the next few days I've got to go to the bank. Right? There's no reason to have any thoughts about going to the bank. So when we get that level of discernment, we can say, hey, I don't have to think about going to the bank. There's nothing to do about the bank right now. Mm. There's nothing to do. I don't have to think about going to the bank. And I can be free from thoughts of going to the bank. So, as our discernment grows, we'll have more and more of a chance of, of looking. So, in the beginning, we can actually bring uh, wholesome thoughts into something that's very, very clear in the sense that if this thought is about what is happening right here, right now, more than likely it's going to be a wholesome thought. Mm -hmm. And if this thought is about something else, somewhere else, someplace else, sometime else, then more than likely it's not wholesome. Mm -hmm. That's the easy way to take a look at it. So, if the mind is a wandering mind, it's going to wander all over the place. Think about it, you've heard, probably heard the term monkey mind. Well, you can imagine a monkey in a forest is going to drop from tree to tree to tree to tree to tree. Hmm. Well, what we're going to do is to kind of set up a clearing or so, so that that monkey can jump around 
but only in one tree. He can't jump to the other trees because we're putting a boundary up. <laughs> and that boundary is, let the monkey jump in the tree that's in the here now. So I can jump from my arm to my leg, to my feelings, to my breath, to uh, the thought, back to the arm, all over the place. Mm -hmm. That in fact, in this regard, we're not taking any object at all. And by doing so, we don't spend so much time in perception, which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. That in fact, the less time we take figuring things out, and the more time we spend actually observing, then the more we'll see. Mm -hmm. And so basically the state that we get into is a state of just observing, just allow things happen without grabbing a hold of anything and shaking it and saying, this is not very good. Let me pry it open and fix this darn thing. No, we just don't pay attention to much of anything. <laughs> And we stay in the here now. So that's one of the ways of going. The other way which I was talking about is that basically what we're trying to do is get the mind into a state of fit for work. Mm. When the mind is fit for work, then we're going to apply this here now directly to the Four Noble Truths in the sense of is this suffering? Or in the sense of, wow, this is really nice. This is free from suffering. No suffering right now. Oh, <laughs> so nice to be in the third no truth. Now, what we're doing here is we're gathering up factors. And the factors that we're gathering up is going to make the mind bright, fit for work, uh, 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 capable of wise attention. Hmm. Uh, in this regard, we can also think of it as applied and sustained thought, that we can apply the mind to that which we want to apply it to, and then keep the mind on that. For instance, keeping the mind in the here now, as opposed to let it wandering away into hindrances. Hmm. And so we begin to get uh, to understand that we have a twofold job to do. One is to get the mind fit for work, to get into a state that has the factors together. And then the next job is to learn to sustain that. And so every time the mind wanders away is a time to bring it back immediately mm. to, uh, to work on the skill of developing it, to get it up, get the mind fit for work. And then we work on keeping the mind fit for work. Hmm. All right, so applied and sustained thought. You probably heard that a phrase before. And, and you possibly also heard about having the mind free from hindrances, that we don't inspect hindrances, we throw them out. Hmm. All we do is inspect them enough to know that this is a hindrance, and in fact, we don't even think about it in the sense of which hindrance it is, but rather, if the mind has wandered away, then that's restless mind. Yeah. Other ones would be doubt. Another one would be wanting something that you don't have. Like the knee over there. It's got a really nice knee over there. She <laughs> ought to put her dress down so I don't see that knee. But now that knee is over there. 
<laughs> it's the drop dead gorgeous just pops up. <laughs> they call that the Vipassana romance. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> but the other thing is, is that I want enlightenment. I need enlightenment. I gotta have enlightenment. Where's my enlightenment? Where's my joy? <laughs> Where's my bliss? I've been sitting for ten thousand hours. Where's my bliss? <laughs> That's a hindrance. And so yep. when you Sorry, may I ask a question? Sure. sure. So when you so when you see the hindrance, you just you pay it no more mind immediately. Just back to the breath. No more no more attention to the hindrance. You see, this is a hindrance. Out you go, right back to okay. right back to the breath. I would go so one more, and that is if a hindrance keeps reoccurring. Mm. An example would be that you've had an argument with someone then you want the entire environment as um, not worthy of attention. Mm. Okay. For instance, the old man who knows the white very well, he's an old Dhamma dude, and, and a new monk comes to the temple, and he has an argument with that, that uh, new monk. When he goes home, he's going to have the strong determination he is not going to think about the what. That's out of mind now. I'm not going to the what. I'm not going to think about the what. Because if he thinks about the what, he'll think about that monk. If he thinks about that monk, he'll think about that argument. And down we go. All right. So this is one of the ways of understanding that we can, in fact, wall off entire things. Like, for instance, if you come to practice uh, uh, Anapanasati here in Thailand, you could wall off. The whole rest of the world. You're not going to think about England. You're not going to think about the U.S. at all. Nothing. Mm. Wall the nice. whole show off. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so any thoughts that comes up about that, aha, I caught you. Yeah. That's the statement that the Buddha made. That's some. That was in fact what helped him to put or piece together the teaching of Paticca Samuppada which then put the Four Noble Truths into a package. Mm. That's the secret point about the teaching of the Buddha, and yet many students don't practice that when they're practicing meditation. Is ah, I see you. I see that hindrance. Mm. Now, in a way, this is what's happening. Let's say that the, in this case, the hindrance is like, is like a bad feeling like anger. Mm. And so in our language, we say, Things like, I am angry, or I am frustrated. Well, that's not correct. But we feel like that, mm. and we're given over to it, and the anger runs the show. But if we have sati, if we have investigation at that point, then we can come from this, the anger has got us. Here is anger, this is poor old me, the victim. And the anger's got the victim, right? Then we sati comes in. Aha! I see you. And by doing that, we disassociate. We pull ourselves out. Now I am no longer angry. I just see the anger. Mm. Well, now on a more subtle level, we can do that with thought. I am not that thought. I just see that thought. Mm. And separate out. Then, because we can see I am not that thought, that's when that statement, aha, I see you, I see you, okay, 
Mm. I see you, uh, and uh, the Buddha's word was, I see you, Mara. Mm. In this regard, we're talking about Mara as the hindrance, or Mara is that part of the mind, the devil. Mm. So when the Christians are, um, oh gosh, what was his name? Uh, a comedian from the 1960s, uh, Flip Wilson. He would say, the devil made me do it. <laughs> Right. Well, that's true. The devil does make us do it. The Mara in our own mind. That's where the devil made us do it. Exactly. Because I am not the devil. I am not that mind. And the devil, because I am not the devil, can't make me do anything. Air how devilish the thought is. If I catch that devilish thought as a devilish thought, out it goes. And the very joy of aha, I see you, devil mind is a joyful that turns the whole thing around that's not uh, oh gosh here it comes again devil 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 right that's the loser we want to develop the winner the right attitude aha i see you this is a state that we call directly gladdening the mind or brightening the mind, bringing the mind out of the suffering, out of the dukkha. Basically, you could say it like this, that you've been spending all of these 20 or more years talking yourself into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. Hmm. That you did talk yourself into feeling bad. So now it's time with wholesome thoughts start having wholesome thoughts and to start feeling good mm. this is the this is the practice mm. having wholesome thoughts then could be wholesome thoughts about the dhamma wholesome thoughts about the here now the wholesome thoughts about this is how this mind works thoughts about this is dukkha and this is the way out of dukkha and this mm. is what it's like to be free from dukkha that's the kind of uh, uh, realm that we want to allow the mind that's the boundary that's the tree to keep the monkey in Hmm. and when we do that great um satisfaction comes up satisfaction in the sense of contentment freedom from uh fear which means we feel secure and safe and we feel like that we're on top of it. We can do this. The right mm. attitude. All right. That gives us a winner's attitude. And the thrill of victory is pity. Mm. The thrill of victory. Which also means then that pity and sukha are kind of a continuum. They're actually the same thing. Pity comes first in the sense of the exhilaration. You could almost go so far as to look at it as the pity is the in-breath. <gasps> and then the sukha is <sighs> the out-breath. And so that idea, aha, I see you, Myra, when this is a skill, when, it, when the skill is developed, that immediately throws us into a state of satisfaction and joy. Got it. Wow, it feels good to be free from Aunt Susie and my argument with her (laughs) or whatever the mind had in it. Okay, so we're developing now 
through freedom from the hindrances or by because we can seclude the mind from those hindrances and develop joy and pity as well as this mind that is um, uh, that fit for work, one that can be capable of wise attention is also referred to as to be able to apply the mind and keep it sustained on something. Well, I have just given in order the jhana factors, the jack factors of first jhana, to organize the mind, bring these factors together so that the mind is wholesome, not unwholesome. The mind is wholesome. The feelings of pity and sukha are there, and the breathing is good, making the mind fit for work. And right now, what's our first job to do? Is to keep it fit for work, to sustain that, hmm. which means that we're going to put the mind on guard. It's going to do some guard duty. But we're only going to do guard duty in the sense of making sure that the next thought is wholesome. Hmm and not allow unwholesome thoughts come into mind. So this is the guard duty to sustain it, is to make sure that the thoughts that come are going to be wholesome. Now, a lot of people will think, oh, well, the goal is no mind, so I should stop the mind. Well, here's the thing about that. If you had a capability that you could get the mind down to, say, a dozen words, wouldn't it be easier to go from a dozen words down to zero words? If you could go, if you got the mind down to two words, then it would be easier to go from two words down to no words. Mm -hmm. Right? In that case, it would be boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath. <laughs> boo, do. Perhaps you've heard of that. All right. But we're not there yet. We're not even at the level of being able to uh, figure out what is wholesome and what is unwholesome and even drawing one boundary. All right. How do we think that we can catch this thing and grab it by the throat <laughs> and choke it when we can't even get a hold of it? <laughs> and so the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to uh, set some boundaries. And the boundaries are wholesome thoughts and one of the kinds of thoughts that are unwholesome that many meditators get into is who am I what is the self that's not an appropriate question mm -hmm. the appropriate question is dukkha and dukkha naroda later when the mind is fit for work and we talk about Paticca Samapada we'll begin to discover what is not the self only when we recognize what is not the self, only then can we figure out where the self comes from, how it arises, and how it goes away, because it's not particularly permanent. Nothing is permanent. Everything is temporary. That you're only selfish sometimes. Hmm. And the times that you are selfish are painful. Hmm. And so we can get our mind into wholesome states. We're not going to be selfish so often or at all. So we're going to be free from suffering. Hmm. So who, I, who am I is not the appropriate question. 
because if you get burned into that, then on and on and on you'll go without ever getting a, a satisfying answer. An example of that is today, take a pad of paper and write down everything about you. You don't have to say this is good and this is bad, just every attribute. Hmm. Next week, you take another pad of paper and you do it again. Next week after that, you do it again. Then a year from now, you go through that stuff and you recognize, wait a minute. It's not the same. Hmm. Everything keeps changing. I am hmm. not what I thought I was because what I thought I was in that moment, next week, I don't think about that. Hmm. That I'm a moving target. Right. When we understand that that's all we really need to know. That I'm not fixed. I'm hmm. a moving target. If I can... If, <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Think about this. If I do change, that means I can change. Hmm. Hmm. Right? Right. If I do change, that means I can change, that I am not fixed or stuck in a personality. Mm. It's my choice, and my choice is when I wake up. When I wake up, I've got a choice. When I'm stuck in habit, I don't have any choice. I just follow the habit. Mm. But when I wake up, now I have a choice. And so basically now the choice then is are you going to follow your old actions, follow the old results, follow the old habits? Are you going to follow your karma? Are you going to come out of it? And the answer to that is right bloody now. <laughs> and I'm going to keep it that way as long as I can. And then I'll lapse and so what? When I wake up again, I'll wake up. A lot of students will pine. They'll wake up and they say, hey, I've been asleep for two weeks. Oh, poor me, I'm a no good. I can't <laughs> meditate. Well, you're not right now. <laughs> not right now. But if you do wake up and you say, wow, I feel good right now. I feel good. Never mind two weeks. Right now is good. And so that's the way to remind ourselves, don't worry about what we're doing wrong. Here's the thing. You have been in the habit of letting the mind have any old thought that it wanted to have for all these years. You have not been developing sati. So why is it when sati comes up and we open our, our eyes or we wake up to recognize that the mind is in hindrances, why do we allow the hindrance to continue? And say, oh, there's that hindrance again. Oh, this, this meditation stuff, I don't know if I can do it. I mean, I need a better teacher. I need, <laughs> I need. <laughs> but that's not really waking up very much. Right. No, we really need to wake up to say, aha, I see that stuff. I see that. Dukkha, I see that frustration, I see that those doubts, and I don't have to do it. I have a choice, and my choice is I'm going to feel good. I'm going to feel like a winner. I'm going to feel like I can handle my life. I'm going to get into a state of satisfaction and then sustain it. Mm. 
The word, by the way, sukkah, is exactly opposite to the word dukkha. They don't make that point very much. They just call it sensual pleasure as if something was wrong with sensual pleasure, but that's not the right translation. Um, That in the Pali, sukkha, dukkha are opposites. In the Thai language, duk and sukkha are opposites. And now I have a, a friend who uh, comes from the Gujarat, and mm-hmm. he says, guess what, even in Gujarati, Duki and Suki are opposites. Mm-hmm. So historically, it's been that case, that these things are opposites, one opposite of the other, which means if you are in a state of Sukha, you cannot be in a state of Dukkha. They are mutually un, are, uh, exclusive. Mm-hmm. So... Your, your skill to be developed is the skill of sukha. Getting yourself into a state of sukha, and there you are in the third noble truth. Wow, <laughs> I feel so good. <laughs> and it right. needs to be practiced. Right. These are skills to be developed. But you cannot practice sukha by being in dukkha. Inspecting dukkha is not sukha. Here's a clear example of that. If you decided that you wanted to learn to play the piano, you bought a piano, you bought a bunch of books, you hired a teacher, you have your first lesson, she gives you an assignment, you take that book home with the assignment, and then you read a physics book all week. Is that going to help you to learn how to play the piano? Do you actually have to practice the piano in order to learn to play the piano? Hmm. I see. Well, if that's true, how are we going to learn to develop sukha? We actually have to play sukha. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Get yourself into a nice little state of satisfaction knowing that that state of satisfaction will grow as you sustain it. Mm-hmm. It's a skill to be developed. The skill of sukha. Dukkha you're already really good at. <laughs> expert <Master>. dukkha. Not <laughs> as expert as some I know. I know some people who are whole much better at it than you are. <laughs> good now is the time to develop sukha. To become satisfied, to allow yourself to be satisfied. You don't have to answer questions you don't have answers to. A lot of students say, oh, if I only knew the answer to the question, who am I, then I could be happy. Oh, no. You may find out who you are and hate it. And then you've changed because before you were ignorant of who you are and now you hate who you are. That means you're not even the same person anyway. So you didn't find out who you are, did you? (laughs) (laughs) So asking questions of who am I are inappropriate. Asking the right question, is this dukkha, is this sukkha? And do the investigation so that you can ask that question. That's the right question.
I see. Yes, I'm starting. Uh, let me not say I see. I'm starting to see. Pardon? So let me not say I see. I'm starting to see. Good. Excellent. Well, now you know even more about how to practice. Aha, I see you. I see you, Myra. That means that we are no longer in that thought. Now we can say, I see that thought. And now I can inspect it. I can look at it. And I can say, out you go. Right. I'm practicing with not not just letting the breath be but as it normally goes, but practicing with intentional. Long, deep, easygoing breaths. Okay. Like you've got plenty of oxygen, plenty of uh, juice going. You feel good. Energized. It's a welcome, it's a welcome change. All right, Peter. Well, I think that this has been a good talk. I think that we've gotten somewhere. It's been lovely. So we'll see you in the next several days. That's right. No more okay. Have a lovely day. Okay, bye-bye.